You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gracious God, you, you are great and greatly to be praised. And our hearts are adoring of you and loving of you. And we thank you that you have put that in our hearts and that you have given us the grace to see you as you are revealed in Scripture and to love you. And it is our desire that we might know in your word those things which you have revealed so that we might give to you hearts of worship and adoration and that we might think rightly of who you are according to your word. So help us, we pray this morning, in that endeavor to think rightly of you, to know the truth about you, our great triune God, so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, and the truth might govern our hearts and our affections and our minds. In the spirit of God, we pray that you would help us in that this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. John chapter 14, will you turn there? John chapter 14 and verse 8. We're going to read together verses 8 through 17. John 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. When we first started the Gospel of John, uh, I shared with you why it is that I chose the Gospel of John, and I know you already heard this, so you remember this well. I told you that it was because I wanted to become more familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ. We had gone through the book of Acts and some of Paul's epistles. We knew Paul well, and we wanted to know Christ well, so we chose to go through a Gospel. Uh, But why specifically the Gospel of John? specifically the Gospel of John as opposed to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, because I wanted to immerse our entire church in Trinitarian language, Trinitarian texts, and be exposed to passages which forced us to think in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Gospel of John has done that. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've been exposed page after page, miracle after miracle, and discourse after discourse, to the person of Christ and His glories and His promises and His claims. And we have been exposed to the deity of Christ. And so we have, we have had the difficult task of, of having to slog through some tough to interpret but very healthy passages on the relationship between the Father and the Son and the nature of the Son and the nature of the Father. And we've had, like for instance, John 5, where we went through the Divine Son discourse. That whole discourse is about Jesus' equality with the Father and yet at the same time, his submission, his role within the Trinity and submitting to the Father in coming here to accomplish the work of redemption. So passages like John 5 and John 6 and John 8 and John 10 have helped us to crystallize the difference between the Father 
and the Son, and to see the roles that each of them play, their equality with one another, and to begin to, to sort of work through what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. When we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, what does that mean? It's difficult for us to comprehend that, but we ought to be able to at least articulate and express these tenets of Trinitarian Christianity, Trinitarian theology. And the Gospel of John has sort of helped us to do that. Up to this point, we have focused primarily upon the Father and the Son. Now, I've mentioned the Holy Spirit as we've gone through John's Gospel because we've seen some passages that refer to the Spirit. But primarily, our focus has been upon the Father and the Son and their relationship with one another. Now we come to a point in the Gospel of John where we are are forced to give more thought and attention to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit than we have given up to this point. And in this discourse, the final farewell discourse of the Lord with His disciples, Jesus is preparing His disciples for His departure. So He is leaving, and He knows that the Spirit is going to come to live with them and to live in them and to dwell within them. So during these final hours with His disciples, Jesus begins to teach His disciples what the Holy Spirit's role would be, who the Holy Spirit is, and He begins to give them some theology and some teaching on the person of the Holy Spirit. And so now we now we have to sort of step back again and make sure that we are understanding what we mean when we say that we worship God in as one God and three persons and sort of help formulate now with the Holy Spirit in the picture what this looks like and how is it that we articulate that. In, one of the interesting things about the Gospel of John is that John gives more teaching and attention and detail regarding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit than any of the other three Gospel writers. That's not to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not Trinitarian in their theology or that they don't mention the Holy Spirit. They do. They're Trinitarian books. And you can argue for the, for the doctrine of the deity of Christ and the Trinity from even the Gospel of Mark, which was probably the earliest of the Gospels. Mark, even Mark, the earliest of the Gospels, is very Trinitarian. But in the Gospel of John, we have more teaching on the Holy Spirit than we have in any of the other Gospels. And we have it in this passage that is before us in verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to give you uh, an outline for verses 16 and 17. There are five things that we notice here about the Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes, this is our outline for verses 16 and 17. First, we notice the Helper's relationship within the Trinity. Second, we are told of the Helper's role concerning the believer. Third, the Helper's residence in the believer. That's Those three are in verse 16. In verse 17, the Helper is rejected by the world, and the Helper is recognized by believers. So those are our five points. The Helper's relationship within the Trinity, His role concerning believers, His residence in the believers, His rejection by the world, and His recognition by believers. Those five things. Now, we're not going to get through all five of those this morning, but we will get toward a lot of that this morning. Uh, but we're not going to get through all of verses 16 and 17 this morning because once again we want to step back and make sure that we are laying some foundational truths regarding the person work of the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice that I didn't say anything about verse 15 and if you're paying attention you say, hold on Jim, last week we stopped at the end of verse 14. Did you just skip over verse 15? I did in terms of our outline but I, I want you to know I'm, we're taking 15 and we're setting it aside for just a moment to focus on verses 16 and 17. And here's why. Later on in this passage, in fact, look down at verse 21, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Eight more times before the end of chapter 14, the word love occurs. We talk, we're going to talk about the love of the father for the son, the love of the son for the father, the love of the father and the son for 
His church and the love of God's people for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's love all the way through the rest of this chapter. Verse 15 kind of sits like an island in the middle of this of this promises that Jesus gives and then the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 kind of sits in there. It seems like an island unto itself. We're not going to skip over it in terms of just leaving it because I don't want to talk about the love of Christ or loving Christ and obeying Him. But we're going to set it aside and we're going to come back to that later in the passage when Jesus sort of picks that theme of love up again and gives an explanation of verse 15 in greater detail. And so then we'll reach up and kind of grab verse 15. But in terms of sort of catching why it's here, why it kind of sits as as an island unto itself, I want you to see how it's connected to the context. Remember in verses 12, 13, and 14, Jesus has made some 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 big promises to his disciples. The promise that that they would do bigger works than he has done, greater deeds, greater miracles, miracles in the or signs, deeds in terms of the conversion of people, the spread of the gospel, and the preaching of the world. The disciples would have a greater power and influence uh, after Jesus left than they did while Jesus was here, because Jesus would be doing his work through them. They, he was going to the Father, and he was going to. This is the promise of verses 13 and 14. He was going to provide for them. Anything that they needed to accomplish the work that He has left them to do. Anything. That is an enormous promise. Anything you ask in my need, that you, my name, that you need to accomplish this great work, I will do it and I will provide it. Now verse 15, just because we are His disciples and we have these promises does not mean that you and I should think that we are the centers of the universe and everything revolves around us. And that God the Father and God the Son sit in heaven and that their sole desire is just to pour out on us blessings and grant the desires of our heart and give us our best life now. That is not the intention of the triune God. This discipleship that we have and these promises that we have been given, they are not given to us in a vacuum, but there are obligations for the believer. What is the believer's obligation? If you love him, you will obey him. That is the mark of a believer is obedience to the Son. To look at His commandments and to delight in doing the duty of a believer. To delight in obeying Him and keeping His commandments. That is the heart cry of every true regenerate Christian. So that's the obligation for the disciple. He's promised all of these things to us as disciples, as followers. But what are our obligations? To love Him and to obey Him. But then we get to the end of verse 15 and we realize, I don't have the power to do that. I don't have the strength to do that. I'm not mature enough. I'm not spiritual enough to do that. I need something more than just a bare command to keep His commandments. I need a helper. That's where verse 16 and 17 come in. He has provided for us a helper. So we pick it up in verse 16 and 17 with this promise concerning the coming of the helper who is the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. So the first of our points was we're going to look this morning at the helper's relationship within the Trinity. Now, what makes us think that the Helper being mentioned in verse 20, uh, verse 16 is the Holy Spirit? Two details. First, verse 17, He is called the Spirit of Truth. And then if you will look at chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about Me. So who is the Helper in verse 26 of chapter 15? It's the Holy Spirit. So, From the context, we understand that the Helper mentioned in chapter 14, verse 16, is the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Truth. He's actually the one who inspires the truth, and Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 6, that He was the truth, and now He's referring just a few verses later to the Spirit of Truth. So, who is this Helper? Who is this Holy Spirit? 
This is not the first time that John has mentioned the Holy Spirit in his gospel. I said to you, he gives us more detail concerning the work and the person of the Holy Spirit than any of the other gospel writers. This is the third mention, at least, of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. There were two other significant passages. Chapter 3, do you remember Jesus' discussion of being born again? In order to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And then Jesus said to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus questioned Jesus about the meaning of this born again that Jesus had mentioned, Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And we learned some things back in chapter 3 about the Spirit. He is the agent. He is the doer of the work of regeneration. He is the one who regenerates or gives new life to the sheep whom the Son has died for and whom the Father chose. So the Spirit of God is involved in this work of regeneration, this work of redemption in terms of regenerating and giving new life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. We also see there that the Spirit is sovereign, that He cannot be controlled. Like the wind, it blows wherever it wishes, so is the Spirit of God. Just as we can say of the Father and of the Son that they give life to whomever they wish, so we are able to say the same thing to the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Anybody to whom He wishes, He can give eternal life. He, He does not have to ask permission from the Father or from the Son to regenerate anybody, for the will of the Spirit concerning the regeneration of God's people is the same as the will of the Father and of the Son. And we also saw the Spirit mentioned back in chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, when Jesus at the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, He got up in the crowd and He said, anybody who believes in Me will have rivers of, of living water flowing out of Him. And John then gives us this little commentary, John chapter 7, verse 39, but this, He, that is Jesus, spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, that is future, from the point when Jesus gave the promise, they were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So those are two key previous mentions of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. Now, in this farewell discourse, there are four more, four significant mentions and teachings on the Holy Spirit before Jesus gets done with His disciples on this evening. The first is the one that we've looked at, verses 16 and 17. The second is the one that I already read to you in chapter 15, verse 26, where the Helper is called the Holy Spirit. The third is in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. We read that last week, and I'm just giving these to you in case you're taking notes. And the fourth one is the extent, an extended session, chapter 16, verses 5 and 15. So in chapter 14, 15, and 16, each of those three chapters, we have teaching on the Holy Spirit. And we are going to work through, obviously, all of those passages in the order in which they're given and all of the things that sort of separate those passages. We'll tie them all in with their context. But we want to begin by going rather slowly for the sake of laying some foundational theological truths. So... We pick it up with all of that as introductory material. Now we get into the introduction. Now you know things are going to go slow and the introduction has an introduction. So that was introductory. Now we get sort of to the introduction. The first point about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, is that His role within the Trinity, and that is in chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper. Now listen, words mean things. And language means things. And Jesus is being very careful, and John is being very careful in the words that he uses in chapter 16, verse 14, verse 16, just as he does everywhere else. But the words are significant, and words are important, and no, and at no point no more important than when we are talking about something as infinite and eternal and mysterious 
as the nature of our God. So I want you to notice this, this, in this passage, we discern everything, all the major tenets that we affirm of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm going to walk through those tenets of Trinitarian theology all from chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. I want you to notice that there are three persons mentioned in that verse. Do you notice them? I will ask the Father, and He will give to you another helper. And notice that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, or the helper, as Him and He. That is, in verse 16, that He, the helper, may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom, personal pronoun, The world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. So I want you to notice that Jesus is referring there to a third person. So we are familiar already in John's Gospel with the Father as being one distinct person separate from the Son. And then we are familiar with the Son who is separate from the Father. Now we have a third person introduced. A third person who is referred to by Jesus with a personal pronoun, indicating that he is a person, not a force. We're going to get into that in just a second. He's not a power. He's not a force. He's not an energy or an influence. He is a a personal person. He has personality. He is described with personal pronouns here in the text. So we have the Father, we have the Son, and now we have the Holy Spirit. Now when we talk about the Trinity, we always be careful, as I mentioned last week or a couple weeks ago, that we don't confound the persons. Do you remember what we mean by that? We don't confuse them or blur the lines between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We don't view them as sort of overlapping or or sharing each other's personality. Um, They are separate and distinct persons, which is why Jesus can say, "I I am going to ask the Father. Obviously, Jesus and the Father are separate persons. Because one person is doing the asking, another person is hearing the request. So Jesus can speak to the Father, and the Father can speak to the Son. There is communication between the two persons because they are two separate and distinct persons. And the one person of the Trinity can speak to the second person of the Trinity about the third person of the Trinity. The Father and the Son can have a conversation about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and the Father can have a conversation about the Son. They are three separate and distinct persons. So we don't confound them. And that language of confounding the persons or confusing the persons comes out of the Athanasian Creed, which I don't remember if you remember it or you slept through it, but we did read it at one point during one of the messages early in the Gospel of John where we kind of walked through the the distinctions between the persons. We don't blur them and we don't overlap them. We are aware that we are dealing with three separate and distinct persons without confounding confounding those persons or confusing those persons. So this is the first thing that we affirm of the Holy Spirit, that He is a person. He is a person. Now sometimes the word person can communicate something to us that we don't mean when we're talking about the Trinity. When I say person, you automatically think of, because of every person you know, you think of somebody who is a different being than somebody else, and a separate person than somebody else, but a different being as well. So when I say person, you think of somebody probably with a body, who has a, a locality. I'll say person, you think of somebody in your head. They might be sitting next to you. They might be sitting in front of you. You're behind you. You might know that they're here. Or you might be thinking of another person who is not here, but they are somewhere else. When we speak of the person personality or the personhood of the Holy Spirit, 
we're not meaning that he has a body or that he has a locality, but that he has a personality. That he has the, the elements and aspects of personhood, which makes persons persons. Now let me describe to you the difference between person and being. You understand the difference between person and being because you use this distinction all the time, but you maybe don't even, you don't even realize it. And I have an earthworm up here. How many beings do I have? One being. That one being is the being or the essence or nature of an earthworm. He's one being. He's one essence, one nature. Earthworm. How many persons is an earthworm? Zero persons. One being, zero persons. Earthworms don't have personality. And you say, no, no, I got earthworms and they like to crawl here and they like to do this and they eat dirt and they fertilize my plants. No, no. Earthworms are not aware of their own existence. Earthworms don't contemplate their own mortality. Earthworms do not think about themselves. They do not have thoughts and they're not aware of their thoughts. And you say, Jim, how do you know that? Have you ever been an earthworm? I've never been an earthworm, but I don't need to be an earthworm to know that earthworms do not have personhood. They have being, they have essence because they exist, but they're not persons. A human is how many beings? One being, how many persons? One person. Did somebody cough because they were the exception to that? Yeah, multiple personality disorder. That was the wrong time to cough, whoever did that. Okay, so if you, if you are, if you are a human being, you are one being and one person. God is one being, three separate and distinct persons. So we distinguish between being and person all the time. Earthworms, one being, zero persons. People, one being, one person. God, one being, three persons. Three persons. Don't put up four fingers when you mean three. Three persons. Three separate and distinct personalities. So we, the Father can have a conversation with the Son and about the Spirit. They can talk about one another. They can talk to one another. And when we affirm that the Holy Spirit is a person, we mean the Holy Spirit has thoughts. The Holy Spirit has a will. The Holy Spirit has personality. He is aware of His own thoughts. He has an intellect. He has a mind just as the Father and just as the Son. He can speak. He can converse, and he can have conversations amongst and with the Trinity. Let me give you some arguments for the personality of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, by the way, contrasted with the idea that the Holy Spirit is power and energy. Sometimes uh, people will talk this way, that, that as if they believe this. This, is, this would be the essence of the way some people talk, that God is a being, and any time we see God move or expend energy or do a work, that's when we see the Holy Spirit. When, when God moves... That's the Spirit. That's the power of God on display. So any demonstration of God's power is the Holy Spirit at work because the Spirit is just like a good energy force, like the good side of the force in Star Wars or some positive New Age idea of energy or influence or power or, uh, well, yeah, those are the words. I'm running out. I don't need to be a thesaurus. Those are the words we're talking about. Energy and influence and power. That that's the Holy Spirit. But the things that Scripture affirms of the Holy Spirit are not things that we affirm of energy sources or power forces. For instance, let me give you a list of arguments from the Scriptures regarding the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He is a person because personal pronouns are used of Him. Personal pronouns. He is always referred to as He, Him, His, and Whom. Personal pronouns. Now here's something that's interesting. The word spirit in Greek is neuter. It's not a masculine noun. It's not a feminine noun. It's a neuter noun, meaning it doesn't have a gender assigned with that. So you tell this by the word endings in Greek, whether something's masculine or feminine or neuter. The word spirit is neuter, which means that every single time somebody in the New Testament refers to the Holy Spirit as him, his, he, or whom, 
it is going outside the normal uses of Greek grammar. It's actually a violation of Greek grammar to use a personal pronoun of a neuter noun. So you grammar Nazis, you let that bug you every single time you are reading. I'm talking the two in my house as well. Every single time you're reading through the New Testament and you read the Holy Spirit being spoken of as him, his, or he, that is a violation of Greek grammar. It's outside of what is appropriate, which is the New Testament writer's way of affirming to us that the personhood of the Holy Spirit trumps grammar. So listen, if you won't, commu- you won't correct Jesus on his grammar, don't correct me on mine. Personal pronouns are used of him. Second, personal characteristics are ascribed to him. Personal characteristics, like, for instance, intellect. 1 Corinthians 2.11. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. The thoughts of God, the spirit of God knows. He has an intellect. He knows what the Father is thinking. He knows what the Son is thinking. He knows what you are thinking. He is just as omniscient as are the other members of the Trinity. He has an intellect. He is smart. He is intelligent. He is creative. He shares all of those divine attributes. Second, he has sensibilities. And by that we mean affections uh, or sensitivities. Sensibilities. Romans 15.30 Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God, God for me. By the love of the Spirit. So the Spirit loves. The Spirit hates. The Spirit strives. The Spirit has these affections. These are sensibilities that only make sense of of somebody who is a person. And third, he has a will. 1 Corinthians 12:11 says he distributes the spiritual gifts in the body just as he, the Holy Spirit, wills. So the Spirit gives out gifts, spiritual gifts, as he wills. He has an intellect, he has sensibilities and affections, and he has a will. Those are the marks of personality. You and I cannot say of electricity or of energy or of a force or of an influence that the, the influence or the electricity is having thoughts. Electricity doesn't have thoughts. Electricity doesn't have a will. A power and influence do not have sensibilities. They do not feel affections and, 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 and love and things like that. Those are things that are only true of persons. Third, personal acts are done by Him, by the Holy Spirit. We're told that the Spirit of God teaches, that He guides, that He calls, that He regenerates, that He speaks, that He empowers, that He strengthens, that He comforts, that He convicts. These are personal activities, things that persons do, not things that powers do or influences or electricities do. Electricity. Electricity is plural. Number four, he relates to the other persons of the Trinity as a person. For instance, the the goal and ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit has a, a ministry and a desire for the Son and for the Father. And the Spirit's goal is to glorify the Father through the Son by drawing attention to the Son. So he relates to other members of the Trinity as an individual person. We never read of of any member of the Trinity, the Father or the Son, speaking of the Holy Spirit as if He is not a person. But we read of the Spirit doing personal things to and with the other persons of the Holy Trinity. Number five, He is included with the other persons of the Trinity in passages like Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We recognize the Father and the Son are separate and distinct persons, and so we say the same as well as of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13:14, which is known as the apostolic benediction, Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, which is sort of shorthand for the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And there you have the, the Spirit included with this sort of Trinitarian benediction. Number six, He, the Spirit, is susceptible to personal treatment. He can be insulted, he can be resisted, quenched, 
blasphemed, uh, lied to. He is susceptible to things that we do to persons. You can't lie to electricity. You can't insult electricity. You can't, uh, you can't blaspheme or speak evil of a power or a force, but only of a person. And then number seven, he is distinguished from his own power. He's distinguished from his own power. Romans 15 and 13. Listen carefully. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now if the Holy Spirit were just God's power, Paul would have just said by power, which is the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't say that. He says by the power which the Holy Spirit has. He is a powerful being and he has power and he is distinguished from power, making him a person. Now, I know that it sounds like sort of a reading through a systematic theology text. Uh, it's necessary information, but understanding that the Holy Spirit is a person is the difference, and grasping this is the difference between heresy and orthodoxy. It's the difference between heresy and orthodoxy. We want to think rightly of our God and to think of Him rightly because if we think of Him wrongly and we worship the image that we have in our mind or the, our thoughts about God, we are guilty of idolatry. So we have to understand these essential things so that we might think rightly of Him. Understanding that there are three separate and distinct persons is what distinguishes us from modalists. And I've mentioned this in the past. Or Sabellians. Modalism is the view that God is one person who acts in three different roles. So I've said before, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, they are modalists. They're not Trinitarian. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. He's not Trinitarian. And the entire denomination of the United Pentecostal Church is modalistic, not Trinitarian. They deny the biblical doctrine of the Trinity and they instead believe this notion of modalism. That the Father is one being and one person who takes on three separate and distinct roles. So in the Old Testament, he kind of came out on the stage of humanity and he played the role of the Father. In the New Testament, he sort of stepped out onto the stage of humanity and played the role of the Son. And now today, in the church age, he is we refer to him or see him as the Holy Spirit. So now he interacts with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. But he is never all three of these things at the same time because he can't be. It'd be like as if I walked out on the stage and I played one actor and then went backstage and changed clothes and came out and played an, another character. Three separate and distinct persons as opposed to one person playing three different roles. That's, that's modalism. Um, verse 16 can't even make sense to a modalist. Realize that? In verse 16, Jesus would have to be saying, I am going to ask myself to send me to you after I go to me. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, modalists are not known for their careful approach to Scripture. Or they wouldn't be modalists. Uh, today, it's, it's my... I'll give this illustration. It's my uh, custom every morning to... when my, I hear my wife get in the shower. I take her up a cup of coffee into the bathroom and I put it next to the shower for her so she can drink coffee while she's in the shower. It's kind of my little thing. I do that every morning, a real kind thing. Well, this morning... Uh, I didn't hear the shower come on. She came downstairs. I said, if you had just gotten a shower, I brought you a cup of coffee. And so she said to me, well, I came down to get my own coffee, so you didn't have to get up, so I'll bring coffee to myself. And I said, you're a modalist. And she <laughs> she didn't get it at first until I explained it, but that's exactly that's exactly right. A modalist would have to read this, and Jesus saying, I'm going to ask me to send me to you after I go to me. That doesn't make any sense. From this passage, we have to affirm there are three separate and distinct persons who can speak to each other and can speak about each other and can speak of each other, and they relate to one another. Three persons. I will ask the Father. He will send you the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit. He will send that third and distinct person. All right. What does it mean, then, when Jesus says that he's going to ask the Father? Was the sending of the Spirit dependent upon the Son asking the Father? I think it would be wrong to say that 
It would be wrong to say that the father needed to be convinced to send a spirit and until the son asked him to send the spirit as if the father had to be kind of coerced. It would also be wrong to think of this in terms of the of, of, of the son kind of coming up with plan B, knowing he was leaving and now he's I got a good idea. I'll send you the spirit. So when I get to heaven, I'll ask the father and see if he would send you the spirit. We have to affirm that every element of our salvation, of, our, of the plan of redemption, was ordained by God and planned by God before a single atom was spoken into existence. So we affirm that. But it is also true and right to say that the sending of the Spirit by the Father was in some way a response to the intercessory work of the Son. Because the triune God planned, before, he, he turned, before our time began, the triune God planned that the Son would come into the world and that He would leave, and that the, the Son then would ask the Father, and the Father would send the Holy Spirit to His people. So it is appropriate and right that the giving of the Holy Spirit by the Father should be the answer of the Father to the request and intercession of the great High Priest, who intercedes on behalf of His people, and asks on behalf of His people that the Father would send the Holy Spirit for His people. Does that make sense? So that is... Uh, Look at chapter 15, verse 26. I wanted to see something there real quick. Chapter 15, verse 26. We'll get to this in due time. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Well, hold on a second. Didn't Jesus just back in chapter 14 say that He was going to ask the Father who would send the Holy Spirit? So who sends the Holy Spirit? The Father or the Son? Chapter 14, it's the Father who does the sending. Chapter 15, it's the Son who does the sending. What's going on there? Well, the Spirit, the Helper, comes from the Father and He is sent by both the Father and the Son at the request of the Son. So united and so perfect is the will of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that they always work in concert with one another. They're never trying to convince one another of anything. They don't argue with one another. There's complete harmony of will and purpose. So we can rightly say that the sending of the Spirit for us, the coming of the Helper, was the will of the Father, the will of the Son, and the will of the Holy Spirit and He is given to us by the Father and the Son at the request of the Son to the Father. Does it blow your mind yet? Beautiful truth. Beautiful truth. Alright, so not only is He a person, but second, He is God. And we learn this from chapter 14, verse 16. Read it again and see if you catch it. Chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. Now what do you mean He's God? Where do you get that from chapter 14, verse 16? There's one key, very important theological word in chapter 14, verse 16, that if you miss it, you miss this reality that He is God. It is the word, another. Now, you didn't think that word could be so significant, did you? Let me explain to you why it's significant. There are two words that John could have used to translate the word another here. The first word is the word alas, A-L-L-O-S, in the Greek, alas, and it is translated in English, another. In fact, that's the word that's used here in verse 16. There's a second word that John could have used, or Jesus could have used, that he didn't, and it is the word heteros. And heteros means, and can be translated, another. Isn't that cool? So you missed something. You did. You missed the distinction between alos and heteros. Let me give you the distinction between alos and heteros. Alos is the word for another that you would use when you want to describe another thing that is of the very same nature and kind. Another of the same kind, another of the same nature. Heteros is the word you would use to describe something which is another of a different kind or another of a different nature. 
Uh, our, uh, Robert Trench in his book, Synonyms of the New Testament, says that understanding the difference between these two synonyms is the difference between a right interpretation and a wrong interpretation in a great number of Bible passages, and this is one of them. So let me illustrate the difference. Let's say I come over to your house, and I'm drinking a cup of coffee, and we're having a nice conversation and a visit. And then I get to the bottom of my cup of coffee, and I drain the last out of it, and I say to you, may I have a loss, another. You would understand me to be asking for another cup of coffee. Another of the very same thing, the very same nature and the very same kind of what I just had. And you would pour me another cup of coffee. But if I'm sitting at your house and we're having a drink and I'm drinking a cup of coffee and I get to the bottom of the cup of coffee and I say to you, may I have heteros? You would understand instantly that I am asking for another, but not coffee. Another drink of something else. Maybe a cup of tea or pop or water. I want another drink but something that is an entirely different nature and an entirely different kind. So then you might ask me, do you, you would understand instantly he wants something else to drink, but not coffee. He wants pop or he wants water. The word heteros is the word from which we get our prefix in English, hetero, as in heterosexual, meaning that some, the heterosexual loves somebody who is another of a different kind, a different nature, right? That's heterosexual. So, uh, oh, by the way, one more thing before we jump into John 6 here. That difference between heteros and alos is a word play that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 1 when he says to the Galatians, you have believed another gospel which is really not another. And we read that in English and we say, what does that mean? I have, you have believed or embraced another gospel which is really not another. It's the difference between alos and heteros. You have embraced a heteros gospel, a gospel which is another gospel, but it is another another gospel. It is another gospel of an entirely different kind. It cannot save. It's not alos gospel. Another gospel of the same nature and same kind, which has the same effect. And so there in that passage, Paul's playing off the difference between alos and heteros. You have another gospel, but it's not another gospel. It's another in the sense of being entirely different than the one that I preach. And it is not another in the sense of being entirely the same as the one I preach. So now back to John chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you alos helper. Another of the same kind, another of the same nature, another of the very same thing. Who is the first? If the Holy Spirit is another, who is the first? Jesus is the first. Who's leaving them? Jesus is leaving them. So he's leaving them and he's saying, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give you another Allah's helper. Another person who is of the very same nature and the very same kind. Now, it's not difficult to follow the math in John 14. If you back up to verse 7, you see Jesus saying, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To look upon me is to see the being and substance and nature and essence of the Father. Not because they're the same person, but because they're the same God. And now, to look upon the Spirit is to see another. Another helper who is of the very same nature and essence as the Son. Now, if the Son is equal to the Father because He is God and shares the same being, and the Spirit is equal to the Son because they are the same God and share the same being, then the Spirit is what? He is God. All wrapped up in that little word, another. Now see, if, if it said heteros there, we would have a huge problem. But we don't. It says alos. He is another helper of the very same nature, the very same kind as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So He is God. So is the Holy Spirit inferior to the Son? No, not at all. If A equals B and B equals C, A equals C. I'm not a math genius, but that makes sense. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage. 
The Son is the same as the Father. The Spirit is the same as the Son. Therefore, the Spirit is the same as the Father in terms of nature and essence and being, but not in terms of person. Three distinct persons, one being who is the eternal God. Now, there are other scriptures which mention uh, arguments for the Holy Spirit being God. And let me give you a couple of lines of argument. First, the attributes of deity are affirmed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. He's said to be eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. He knows all, he is everywhere, and he has all power, he is almighty, and he is eternal. Those are what we call the essential attributes of deity, meaning that God could not be God if he were not one of those. He would not be God if he was not eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. Those are essential attributes of deity. But conversely, since they are essential attributes of deity, anybody of whom it can be said that he has these attributes must be God and none other. Anybody who does not have them cannot be God. Anybody who does have them must be God. And those eternal divine attributes, the attributes of God, are affirmed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. He is called uh, He is called the eternal spirit in the book of Hebrews, and he is said to know all things and search the minds of all men. He is said to be omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Second, the works of deity are ascribed to him, works like creation, regeneration, sanctifying God's people, raising the dead, inspiring Scripture. Those are the works of deity, and those works are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Third, the works and words of God are called the works and words of the Holy Spirit. For instance, in the Old Testament, we have passages where it clearly says that the Lord, God, said this through Moses or to Moses or to the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, quote unquote, the very words of God himself are attributed to the Spirit. The Spirit expressly says and quotes an Old Testament passage where it says that this is what God says, meaning that the Holy Spirit must be and is called God. The New Testament authors, in other words, had no problem taking the words that they knew to be the words of God and attributing them to the Holy Spirit and saying the Spirit of God has said these things because God has said these things. And fourth, the Holy Spirit is called God. Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. You cannot lie to a personal force, a non-personal force. You cannot lie to electricity. You cannot lie to power. You can only lie to a person. And they lied to the person who is the Holy Spirit, and they lied to God. So he's not a he's not a power force. He is, in fact, actually God. So those are our two tenets of Trinitarian theology, that we have three persons who eternally and always exist in the one being. They share the one being, which is the essence and nature and the being of God. So we have three persons and one being who is the triune God. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed. They have always been the same. They do not change. Their essence and their nature do not change because they are divine. So, what is it that we learn then about the relationship of the Helper within the Trinity? Three things. Number one, that He is a person, which means He can be He can be conversed with, He can be prayed to, He can be spoken of, we refer to Him as Him, we can become uh, knowledgeable of Him, we can grow in our understanding of who He is and our appreciation of Him. Uh, he can speak to us in the pages of Scripture. We speak to Him and it is appropriate to address Him because we are addressing a person. Second, we learn that He is God. Not only is He a person, but He is God. That is, that He is almighty and He is eternal and He dwells within us. We haven't got to that yet, but He dwells within us and He is the infinite and eternal God. So, it is appropriate to think upon and to meditate upon the Holy Spirit. And it is appropriate to pray to Him and it is appropriate to worship Him and it is appropriate to grow in our affections for Him and it is appropriate to ask Him for help and to understand that we relate to Him just as we relate to the Father and to the Son because He is in fact God. So worshiping Him and loving Him and adoring Him is appropriate. 
In the future, we might deal with this issue that within some camps, the emphasis on the Holy Spirit begins to become very modalistic in its approach um, and becomes an abuse of praying to and worshiping and loving the Holy Spirit. Because when we reflect upon the Spirit of God, we think about Him and contemplate Him, meditate on Him, instantly our thoughts also go to the other members of the Trinity. They must flow to the Son and to the Father as well, for in the Spirit are all of the perfections and attributes of the Son. So thinking upon Him draws my affection to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is quite appropriate, because the goal of the Spirit is to glorify the Father in the Son. So when I reflect upon the Spirit, it is never at the expense of the other persons of the Trinity, but always to accentuate my love and adoration and appreciation of the other members of the Trinity, because the Spirit is God. And the third thing we learn, not only that He is a person, that He is God, but that He is the loving gift of the Father to us. He's the loving gift of the Father to us. The Father has given to those who are in Christ the gift, the loving gift of the Holy Spirit. Of all the things that the Son could have asked the Father for, for His people, what did He ask Him for? The Holy Spirit. There's no better gift. There's no better thing that the Father... That was wrong, wasn't it? There's no better person that the Father and the Son could have given to His people than the person of the Holy Spirit. There's no greater gift because He is the loving gift of the Father and the Son to us. And so we ought to love Him and adore Him and appreciate Him and thank Him for His gifts and His bounties and what He does for us and in us and all the works of regeneration and creation and providence that the Spirit of God works out on behalf of the people of God who are bought by the Son and loved by the Father. Now we haven't got yet to the role of the Spirit concerning the believer because that's all wrapped up in that word helper, which we haven't got to yet, but that's what next week is for. So let's bow our heads and we'll pick it up there next week. Oh, our gracious God, we thank you for these, this reminder of who you are and what you have done for us. These things are beyond our human ability to grasp or fully comprehend. We can apprehend these things, we, we can articulate them, but we will never fully know the depth within the being, within your being, which is so divine and so infinite and perfect. And so we have to just bow the knee of our hearts to you and confess that we don't fully understand everything we have affirmed here, but we know that this is what Scripture teaches concerning you, our great triune God. So help us to gain an appreciation for who you are and to never neglect one of your persons. May we constantly give our love and affection to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and help grow us in our understanding of the Trinity, uh, Trinitarian theology, and the relationship that exists there so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we do pray, Spirit of God, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to these things and remind us of them constantly. Help us to appreciate you for who you are and what you have done for us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are God as well and that you have died in our place on a cross, giving an atonement for us, which has brought us into this eternal relationship with you. And Father, we thank you that you've loved us before the foundation of the world. You chose us in Christ that we may be holy and perfect and blameless before you in love. May you confirm your plan and your predestined, uh, uh, your predestined plan and predetermined purpose for us. May you confirm that in time and in reality and draw all your people to yourself through the wooing of the Holy Spirit that they may behold the Son and love him and give him affection. May you be glorified in us and through us, we pray. And may the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Christ be with all who are yours, both now and in eternity, we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time.
Once again, thank you for listening.